Okay, well, let's go ahead and ask the Lord's blessing in our time, shall we? Father, thank you that you do give to us every week time to come and to <clears throat> spend time in worship. And we know that's something that you require of us as your people, not only that we assemble together, that it's purposeful that we come together for worship through singing, which is preaching, congregational preaching to song. And uh, then also the observance of the table, something that our king has established uh, for us and uh, that we are required to do. And we look forward uh, to doing every week because of the blessing, the cleansing, and the empowering that is afforded to us through it. And Father, as we enter in now to the high point of that uh, worship time, the time where now we hear back from you, Father, I pray that you would open our hearts to receive it, to receive that word, and then also to use it in a way that transforms our lives to be more like our King. Make it so, we pray in His name, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as always, if you would, direct your eyes to the top of that handout. Follow along as I read the short introduction there. Safely navigating our souls to the shores of heaven requires we spy the lies that lead to shipwreck. 1 Timothy 1.20, Paul speaks of an individual who shipwrecked his soul. And so we need to spy the lies that lead to such things. And the truth, those lies often conceal. And that is uh, what we have been discussing for the past several weeks now. By way of brief review, number one, the first lie, you don't have what it takes to live for God and get to heaven. You don't have what it takes. Years ago, I remember meeting a individual who was uh, preaching at his church and uh, he told me that the message he was preaching was uh, to the children in that church from Ephesians 6 where uh, we have uh, the commandment, children obey your parents, which of course goes back to uh, the Old Testament Decalogue or the Ten Commandments. And uh, he told me that uh, he would be preaching that message as, uh, children, you can't do it. Uh, you can't obey your parents uh, but good news, Jesus was a kid and he obeyed for you. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus did not obey for us. And we can do it. Can we be perfect? No. Does God require us to be perfect? No. If he did, he would have not provided a sacrifice. Instead, he requires us to be faithful. And according to 2 Peter 1, verse 3, we have everything we need to do that. We have everything that we need for all life and godliness. The second lie that we discussed, the devil poses no threat to the Christian and as we saw from places like 1 Peter 5, 8, 
which is not an empty threat. The devil prowls around looking for someone to devour. And the scriptures are, of course, written to Christians. And so who Peter has in mind are Christians. The devil prowls around looking for weak and isolated and foolish Christians because they are easy prey. Well, that brings us to our new material and our third lie to be spied. The consensus of pagans, our thoughts, our spiritual beliefs, and our feelings are all things we can trust when attempting to discern truth. Let me say that again, and you think about all the items that are on the list here. The consensus of pagans. Ethnos is the, uh, the term in the New Testament that gets translated most of the time, unfortunately, as Gentiles. The better translation there is the word pagan, which means unbeliever. The consensus, meaning the majority, what the majority of the world or unbelievers think. Our thoughts, meaning our personal thoughts that come up during the day. Our spiritual beliefs, what you believe about God or other things pertaining to God or even God's word. And our feelings are all things we can trust. Trust when? When we are attempting to discern truth. That's not truth. That's a lie. That is a lie. We cannot trust what the world thinks. We cannot trust even our own thoughts, our spiritual beliefs, what we believe again about God or things pertaining to God, His Word, or our feelings. Those four things cannot be trusted when attempting to discern or determine truth. Some things about those Four items. Those who trust the consensus of pagans, what the majority of unbelievers think, are, according to God's word, following the consensus of the devil and his demons. That, in reality, is who you then are listening to if you listen to what the majority of the world thinks. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us this. Paul is the author, the Apostle Paul, and uh, there in those uh, first two verses he says this, and you, speaking to the Ephesians, were past tense dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Here's what that looked like walking in trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, 
Another way of putting that, following the consensus of this world, of pagans, of unbelievers, listening, in other words, to what they say, trusting what they believe to be truth. Following the course of this world, and then we have this, uh, in grammar, we call this an appositional phrase, which just means that uh, what follows here is explaining what preceded it. What it means to follow the course of this world is to follow the prince of the power of the air. Which is just another way of referring to the devil. And so to follow the world, to listen to the majority of what unbelievers think, to trust what they say to be true is no different than following the devil or listening or trusting what he and the demons say. Those that are now at work in the sons of disobedience. So why would I trust what the majority of unbelieving people think? Why would I trust what the devil thinks? And again, the two are connected. What the world thinks is what the devil and his demons has influenced them to think. They follow what he tells them, what he teaches them, the propaganda he sells, they follow. They follow the devil's agenda. They follow the devil's belief system. Now, of course, the devil uh, knew who Jesus was. The devil knows that there's a God. And so when I say his belief system, his uh, fraudulent belief system, the system that he wants you to believe, trusting then the world equals trusting the one who is in control of the world. 1 John 5.19 Number two, God considers those who trust in their thoughts. So moving on from the consensus of the world or pagans or unbelievers to our thoughts. Well, God considers those who trust in their thoughts to be fools or even worse, evil. Or wicked. Hence the reason Proverbs 3 5 says, Do not lean on your own understanding. Hence the reason that Proverbs 28 26 says, Anyone who trusts in his own mind is a fool. And that at the very least. If you trust your thoughts, the things that uh, pop up in your head, and you say, Well, because I'm thinking those things, they must be true. You are at the very least a fool. And according to passages like Psalm 10.4, you are the wicked. The thoughts of the wicked, Psalm 10.4. The thoughts of the wicked in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him, meaning God. All his thoughts are, the thoughts popping up in his head, there is no God. Chapter 14, 
Going back to the fool, the fool says the same thing. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And so trusting in your thoughts means you're a fool or even worse, evil. The writer of Psalm 73 fell into this uh, trap and almost shipwrecked his soul. Psalm 73, as he observed the world and uh, all of the ways in which the wicked prosper. Verse 12, behold, these are the wicked always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain then I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, if I had taken those thoughts and uh, produced words out of them, if I had taught others this, I would have betrayed the generation of your children here speaking to God. But when I thought how to understand this, seemed to me a wearisome task. Skipping down to verse 21, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart by these things, by these thoughts, the wicked seem to have everything good going for them, whereas I, as I follow God, there seems to be nothing but bad. When I thought this way, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Keep that in mind because we're going to come back to that here in just a little bit. This idea of becoming like an animal. That's what he's saying. Uh, That kind of thinking made me like an animal. uh, Drawing such conclusions made me no better or no smarter than an animal. So again, God considers those who trust in their thoughts to be fools or even worse, evil. Number three, hell is going to be filled with Christians in quotes here, those who claim to be Christians but are not Christians. Hell is going to be filled with these kinds of people, these so-called Christians who trust or trusted in Their spiritual beliefs, who called their sacred cow Jesus. And sacred cow is a term that that comes from Exodus 32, where uh, Aaron told the people when uh, Moses uh, tarried on the mountain, uh, take your golden rings and give them to me. And out of those golden rings, he fashions a golden calf, a sacred cow. One that they would bow down to and worship. He said these words to Israel after crafting this sacred cow. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And that last part there, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, means that Aaron is telling them, this is Yahweh. The reason, uh, interestingly enough, he uses the, uh, the plural term there, gods, and it is a plural both in verse 4 and in verse 8 when uh, God communicates the same message to Moses about what the people are doing. Uh, the reason that that is the case is because we know God to be a trinity. This goes back to uh, Genesis chapter 1, meaning that there is more than one person who makes up the Godhead. 
And this trinity, according to uh, what Aaron is saying here, uh, was to be understood as a cow. Most likely, uh, the reference is to uh, the Egyptian god Apis, which the Israelites living in Egypt would have been uh, very familiar with, Apis. And yet again, here we have idolatry, wrong assessment as it relates to who God is. In this case, as it relates to their spiritual beliefs, the Israelites, those who were in covenant with God. As a matter of fact, that's the reason that uh, uh, Moses was up on the mountain. This goes back to uh, Exodus 24. Or that's where it starts. Moses making covenant with the people and then going up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. And uh, what they believed or what they uh, revealed themselves to believe was that God could be made into an image like a cow. And so the idea of a sacred cow is just that. It means that what we actually believe in is not the truth or the true God, uh, but a false manifestation. Idolatry. And again, hell will be filled. We know this. Scripture tells us this. Passages like Matthew 7, many, Jesus says, on that day will stand before me and say, Lord, Lord, and I will say away from you, or away from me, I never knew you. Many, not few, many. Well, what was the problem? They called Jesus Lord. Well, the Jesus they knew was not the true Jesus, but a sacred cow, an idolatrous Jesus. Revelation 22, verse 15, uh, speaks this way about those who are outside, meaning outside of uh, the new heavens and the new earth. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters. And everyone who loves and practices falsehood. And that goes hand in hand with this idea of idolatry. What you're practicing, what you're believing in is false. But you love it. You won't listen to the truth. You love your sacred cow. And here we're being told those people will not be in the new heavens and the new earth, but outside the idolaters. So again, uh, even our spiritual beliefs, to say what I trust is my spiritual beliefs and that that's okay or that's how I discern truth. Again, wrong. That's a lie. And for that reason, because people do trust in their spiritual beliefs, as truth, or as the means to determining truth. Because of that, hell will be filled. There will be a special wing in heaven, or excuse me, hell, for such people. Those Christians who trusted in their spiritual beliefs, they believed that what they believed about God, about His Word, was true. When in reality, it was just another sacred cow. The scripture's main audience, as I've already uh, mentioned in our uh, prior uh, point by way of review, 
the scripture's main audience is always uh, those claiming to follow God. And so uh, that is uh, who it is speaking about here in verse 15. Uh, Don't be confused by that. Those that it's speaking of here are uh, those who at one time claimed to be Christians. And are now outside because of their guilt in relation to the items that are listed here, which includes idolatry and speaking and practicing falsehood. A good example of this, and this is nothing new if you've been in this church for any time, evangelical Christianity, who possesses a sacred cow form of Jesus, Yes, if you go to those churches, you'll hear uh, the same songs being sung. You'll hear them pray to Jesus. They'll speak of their love for Jesus. A lot of the vernacular, a lot of the terminology will be the same. But what they believe about Jesus, most specifically and most importantly, about salvation in relation to Jesus, is wrong, is false. 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 1 speaks, I believe, to this issue uh, among many other passages. Uh, But 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 1 says this, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, that being a reference to the end just before Jesus comes back, which means this is one of the indicators, one of the things that we can look to that we are in the latter or end days or end times, That in those latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Interesting, isn't it, that uh, the demons or Satan is not just in the world. He's not just uh, uh, controlling or influencing the thinking or the thoughts or the beliefs of the world. He is also influencing and controlling the thinking and the thoughts and the beliefs of many in the so-called church. And they will listen to that, that teaching, that doctrine. The word there, they will depart from the faith. I think a better translation of that is uh, faithfulness. It's our word uh, there in Greek, pistis, which is, uh, or can be rather translated either faith or faithfulness. There's a one word in the Greek and there's only one word in the Hebrew for uh, faith or faithfulness. And the context would determine uh, how you uh, would interpret or translate rather that particular term. Uh, Here's the reason I'm telling you that I think it should be faithfulness. Uh, Again, uh, the appositional phrase or the explaining phrase that follows. Notice again what it says. Some will depart from faithfulness by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of deans. Devotion. What's another word for devotion? Faithfulness. And so here we have uh, uh, Paul unpacking what he means by depart from faithfulness. They will do it. What that looks like is a devotion not to God's word, but a devotion rather to deceitful spirits and the teaching, the religion, the beliefs, the sacred cow of demons. And again, the Spirit says, this is what it will be like in those last days. Uh, Faithfulness to God will be replaced by faithfulness to the devil. 
The whole time, however, these people are thinking what? Not that they're following the devil, but that they're following Jesus. Deuteronomy 32, verse 17. Moses warns us of this. The warning that he gives there is that uh, don't be taken by new gods that had come in or have come in recently. And he's actually rebuking them for doing that in the past. And uh, it's meant there is a warning also then for the future. New gods that have come in recently. What's interesting about uh, the evangelical position, which is, of course, the, uh, the faith alone position, which means the only thing you need to be saved uh, is faith, not faithfulness. Only one thing, faith, hence the reason they say faith alone. The interesting thing about that is that this position did not come about until 1,600 years after the time of Christ. In other words, nobody believed that until uh, the Protestant Reformation, which took place uh, in actually 16th century, but 1,500 years. It happened in the 1,500s. Nobody believed that until then. I would call that new gods that have come in recently, wouldn't you? There's less time between us and the Reformation than there is in uh, uh, with Jesus in relation to the Reformation. For 1,500 years, uh, Jesus and the church, the epicenter of everything that we know and believe, knew nothing of faith alone as the only way that you're saved. And then all of a sudden in the 1,500s, which means, uh, I guess, uh, we are a little bit more than uh, 400 years uh, removed from that now, but... uh, Still, a lot shorter time span. That has become the new popular gospel, has it not? It's interesting, Luther is credited with being the, uh, the restorer of the gospel. There was a saying in Latin that uh, essentially translates this way, this way, after darkness light. Because it was believed that he had restored uh, the gospel to the western world In reality, he was not the restorer of the gospel, but the destroyer of worlds. The Western world at the very least. His faith alone gospel may have marked the beginning of the end of human history. Again, uh, speaking to uh, texts that tell us the things to look for uh, as the sign of the end or the beginning of the end. Matthew 24, 12 says, it will be a time of lawlessness, the removal then of law-keeping, or faithfulness as necessary to salvation. And so spiritual beliefs, saying, well, I, I, I trust that what my church teaches, that's the truth. And uh, I can be good with that. That'll get me to heaven. Well, again, heaven, excuse me, that uh, you may believe that, but hell will be filled filled with people who trusted in that very thing, who believed that they were Christians, and that what they believed about Christianity was going to get them to heaven, and yet they will be in hell. What about our feelings? We've talked about this before, but let's do so again. Uh, Do we trust our feelings? Is that where we look? 
The world says follow your heart, trust your gut. What does God's word say about our feelings? Well, trust in our feelings is the behavior of young people and the children of wrath. Going back to that Ephesians uh, 2 text that we were just in, Ephesians 2, right after uh, verse 2, it then says this, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Apathumia uh, is the term there, translated uh, passions. And it literally refers to our feelings. We'll look at that here in a minute from 1 Timothy 5, 11, where uh, it is clear, uh, you'll be able to see very clearly that it is indeed referring to our feelings. But notice here, uh, in which we, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, walking by or living according to the passions of our flesh, our feelings, Well, that's the behavior of those who are the children of wrath. It's also the behavior of young people. Hence the reason that Paul says in 2 Timothy uh, 2 Timothy, in chapter 2, verse 22, uh, flee from youthful passions, feelings or emotions. Feelings-oriented living is most associated with young people. Hence the reason that uh, Paul speaks that way to young Timothy. Hence the reason young people are always at a greater risk of apostasy. The text that I was referring to, by the way, the 5.11 text, where this term epithumia translated uh, passions, uh, easy text to see that this is indeed talking about our feelings. Notice there, but refuse, 1 Timothy 5.11, but refuse to, Enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry. Think about what he's saying there. In this case, you have uh, young ladies who've lost their husbands at a young age. And uh, they've made a commitment to not be remarried. uh, And yet, their passions draw them away. And they desire to be married, so they, they renege on what they said they were going to do, and that because of their passions. I think it's pretty clear uh, from this passage that what he means by passions is what? Their feelings draw them away. And so again, that is uh, uh, what this word, uh, passions, when you find it in your New Testament, is referring to. It's referring to feelings. And again, what does the Bible say that Uh, feelings are associated with, well, the behavior of young people and the children of wrath. Trust in our feelings is how we lose the war for our souls and are re-corrupted. We talked about this in relation to propitiation uh, several weeks ago and uh, how we get that one-time cleansing from Jesus, hence the reason passages like Hebrews 6 say, hey, if you fall away, if you re-corrupt the soul... Uh, There is no re-crucifying of the Lord. There's no second chance. And uh, one of the ways that uh, we can do just that is re-corrupt our soul, that we lose that war for our soul, is by trusting in our feelings. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 speaks to this in this way. Verse 11, Beloved, I urge you, I beg you, in other words, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions, epithumia, the feelings of the flesh. 
Notice what he says, which wage war against your soul. And so by trusting them, what are you doing? Well, you're losing that war for your soul. You're losing that war. Hence the reason, again, that uh, Peter says it the way he does. I urge you. I love it. He, uh, by the way, puts in here sojourners and exiles because that's the mentality that we're to have. A sojourner just means somebody who's just passing through. This is not my home. I'm, I'm just passing through. I'm here on business. Right? I'm here on business. I'm here to, to finish my mission. I'm an exile. This is not my home. I'm passing through and I'm going to complete my business. I'm going to fulfill the orders of my master and then I'm going home. And Peter says that's the mindset that you're to have. And in doing so, you're to abstain from the feelings of the flesh where they want you to go. Trusting, in other words, the feelings of your flesh. Why? Again, they're the ones waging the war for the re-corruption of your soul. James 4.1 also speaks this way. James 4.1 He says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions, epithumia, your feelings, are at war within, notice, within you? It's the battle inside. Between your feelings... And your soul. Feelings also, according to James, are the source of most temptation. Most temptation comes through the feelings. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And again, and uh, I don't know why they chose desire there, because again, it's our word, epithumia. They are enticed by their feelings. Trust in our feelings is, according to Titus 2 and 3, also Galatians 5 and 1 Peter 1, a rejection of our salvation. A rejection of our salvation. Titus 2. Titus 2. Paul says this about our salvation. Verse 11, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. Here's what our salvation does, and here's why I say then it's a rejection of that, if we're not doing what he says here, bringing salvation that trains us, or that is training us to renounce ungodliness, and notice the second thing, worldly epithumia, passions, feelings, feelings that are, in other words, for the things of the world, feelings that uh, wants to go along, or agree, or listen to the world, to the consensus of the world, to the consensus of the devil. 
Our salvation is training us to renounce that. Uh, the NAS, I believe, has it this way, to say no to those things. To renounce those things. Worldly passions. Feelings. And so, if we're not doing that, what are we doing? Well, we're rejecting our salvation, what we were saved for. Our salvation is training us. As part of our salvation, we are being trained to reject those things, not give in to those things. Chapter 3, verse 3, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray. That means away from the truth. Slaves, here's why we were led astray. Slaves to various passions and pleasures. Slaves to various feelings. And because of that, we were, again, led astray. And plugging that back into what we saw there in chapter 2, this is what our salvation is now training us to say no to. We're not to live there. We're not to trust our feelings again. We were saved from that. Hence the reason that Paul can say what he does in Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5 verse 24. Listen to this. And those who belong to Christ Jesus, the saved, have crucified the flesh with its passions, epithumia again, and desires. Uh, uh, the word that is uh, translated here, desires, uh, interesting uh, that is translated this way. Uh, uh, pathema is the, is the term in Greek from which we get uh, passion from or pathos from. And uh, it literally means uh, sufferings, which is interesting that they translate it here as desires because in places like Romans 8.18 where it talks about the sufferings of Christ, it's the same word, pathema. It means suffering in the case of uh, suffering for sin or in sin. The suffering brought on in our flesh by sin is how Paul uses it in Romans chapter 7, verse 5. And most likely what he's talking about there is uh, what it's talking about here, uh, that there is a suffering because our feelings uh, create that. Do they not? That's why uh, people give in to them, right? Because there's a tension that's created. You have all of these feelings, very strong feelings that are telling you to do things that are sinful. To listen to the world. And uh, Paul calls that the suffering of sin. Hence the reason that Peter can say that those who have suffered in the flesh, meaning that they did not give in to that suffering, are done with sin. But again, when we live in those things, when we trust our feelings, we are rejecting what we were saved unto. We are instead to be people who have crucified those feelings. If we live by the Spirit, verse 25, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. The Spirit is antithetical to the flesh. We're not listening to the flesh listening to the Spirit, and we're going to see exactly what that means here in just a second. Uh, but the last text that I would have you consider in respect to this is 1 Peter 1, verse 14, where here uh, he speaks to the ignorance of this. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions, epithumia, the feelings of your former ignorance. 
very similar to what we saw in Titus 3. Things in which we once walked, things by which we were led astray, we were ignorant to what we now understand, which is don't trust how you feel. Number four, trust in our feelings is what, we will, is what will characterize the world and false churches just before Jesus comes back. And so uh, yet another one of these clear markers of when we're at the end is this. The world and false churches will be characterized by this. Be characterized by what? By people who live continually in their feelings. Meaning this, they trust their feelings to discern truth. And isn't that what we hear today? I mean, I heard it when I was a kid. We heard, uh, you know, follow your heart, go with your gut. Uh, But never like it is today. Now it's everywhere, right? It's considered wisdom. Trust your gut. Uh, Follow your heart, which just means trust your feelings. And uh, according to Jude, uh, here based on the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 17, here was their prediction. They said to you in the last times there will be scoffers following, notice, their own ungodly, and here's our word, epithumia, passions, feelings. In the last time, notice that, in the last days, just before Jesus comes back, here's one of the signs. Uh, People will, this is how they'll live, this is how they'll discern or determine what's true, what to trust. They will trust their passions, they will trust their feelings to determine those things. Notice verse 19 It is these who cause divisions, these kinds of people. They're the ones that cause divisions in the church is most likely what he's speaking about here. People that are slaves to their passions, to their feelings. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. Operating by your feelings means that you are void of the spirit. Or maybe another way of putting this is that that's how you quench the spirit. You're in the church and God gives you the spirit and God expects you to walk in step as we saw in Galatians 5 or keep in step or be led by the spirit. And yet because you continually reject that and you follow your feelings, you quench the spirit. You are now void of the spirit. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 1 says that uh, difficult times are coming and uh, what makes those... uh, the times that are coming, and again, uh, if you notice there in verse 1, understand this, in the last days, here is that, uh, uh, that uh, marker in relation to time or human history. In the last days, just before uh, Jesus comes back, there will be days or times of difficulty, and a part of that will be this, verse 4 of chapter, or excuse me, verse 3 of chapter 4, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching in those days. This is why Paul says it's going to be difficult. Difficulty will be in this, in preaching sound words. Why? Because the people will not endure that kind of teaching. They won't like that kind of teaching. Why? Because they are people living in their feelings. And they prefer to have their itching ears tickled. To have uh, teachers 
uh, that will suit, notice, in the text, their own passions. And so they will, as he says, accumulate for themselves these kinds of teachers. They will go, in other words, to those kinds of churches. Places that will, as he says, uh, tickle their ears or uh, itch or scratch their ears in this way. And what does he mean again by that? Well, uh, teachers that uh, will reinforce that what they feel is right. That your feelings are uh, something that you should trust here in a religious context as it relates to spiritual beliefs. That you know the truth because of how it makes you feel. There's a, uh, a particular hymn, and we don't sing it here in this church, uh, but there is a hymn that uh, says, uh, You ask me how I know he lives, because he lives in my heart. Uh, what is that, uh, the person who wrote that, what are they saying by that? Well, they're saying, I think, something very similar to this. Uh, how I know is because of how it makes me feel. Truth that uh, discerned, by my feelings. People who go into churches and say, I can feel the Spirit's presence here. Those are the kinds of churches in the end that uh, uh, people will, uh, will in mass uh, uh, waves will attend. Those are going to be the big churches, Right? They will accumulate themselves. They will gather together for themselves these kinds of churches. That's what he's saying here. What kinds? Those that suit, that satisfy literally their feelings. That make them feel good. Another reason then that we shouldn't be trusting our feelings when attempting to discern truth. Paul, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, I thought it was interesting today that we, uh, we prayed this way, and it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a biblical way to pray for people, and that is to, to give them strength when it's difficult to speak God's truth, or uh, that they know that the audience that they're speaking to is going to be difficult. Uh, Paul had this kind of difficulty all the time. And a sign that he did not rely on his feelings uh, to tell him that what he was speaking was truth was the fact that he kept speaking it, though it was difficult. And again, as I said, a lot of people are gauging whether what they're saying or not saying is true or right or being led by the Spirit is determined by how it makes them feel or how it makes the other person feel. Well, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, verse 5, Paul says that their uh, experience in Macedonia which is where you find the, the church of Philippi or the church of Thessalonica or the Berean church that's spoken about in Acts. Well, that's all in that, uh, that landmass known as uh, Macedonia. And Paul says in that particular region, we had difficulty, fears within or fights within or fights without. A constant tension Again, going back to 2 Timothy 3.1, times of difficulty. Hence the reason the verse just prior to the one that we read, he says you are to preach the word in and out of season. Even when it's unpopular, even when it's difficult, you will preach that word. Uh, because the sign that what you're doing is right is not determined by how it makes you feel or how it makes other people feel. 
First Thessalonians chapter two, verse two, uh, Paul says again there, we spoke the word in much conflict. If I'm a person trusting on uh, feelings to discern truth, then I'm the kind of person that says, you know, maybe uh, what I'm doing isn't right. Maybe I shouldn't speak those words because uh, they're not happy about it. It doesn't make them feel good and therefore it doesn't make me feel good and so I'm going to stop. Paul didn't stop. Instead, over and over, Paul asks for the church's prayers that he may become all the more bold in speaking in those times of difficulty. We see the same thing, by the way, in Acts chapter 4 in relation to the church after uh, Peter and I believe it's John are released and uh, they come back to them and they've been told not to speak the words and the church together prays for God's spirit empowerment so that they may continue to speak all the more boldly in the midst of difficulty. Trusting our feelings Not a good thing to trust, especially when it comes to spiritual things. Trusting our feelings is risky, just in general, and uh, this is now coming from uh, how the world understands or how uh, we understand uh, feelings work from a physiological perspective. They are risky given they are shortcuts that may be inaccurate or wrong. And so just as it relates to the physiological realm, how all of those things work and are working inside our bodies, uh, here's uh, what we know. Feelings don't think. And so why would you give them the role of thinking? I mean, if you're going to discern truth, you would, I think, at least want to uh, put that in the hands of something that thinks and feelings don't think. Uh, What we're told by uh, scientists is that they are instead, and again, this is just uh, working off what uh, scientists can tell us about uh, the physiological reactions or activity that's taking place uh, in the body or in the brain. They are instead thinking shortcuts. I've talked about the uh, check engine light on your car before. Thinking shortcuts established by learning adopted in prior situations. Learning adopted in prior situations that alert us, the check engine light, when our senses, our hearing, our smell, our touch, our taste, our eyes, when our senses identify situations similar enough, this is how uh, uh, rudimentary it, it is in the way it functions, It may not exactly be the same thing. Our body really doesn't know how to make those types of distinctions, but it's similar enough. We'll get the response. We'll get the emotional response to those prior situations. So meaning this, again, you've learned something in the past. Uh, This is how you are to react to that particular situation, or you learned that that situation was bad, whether it was truly bad or not. And uh, as a result, your body calibrates uh, the, uh, the feeling consistent with that. And so now as you go out into the world and uh, you come across something that your senses tell you is a similar situation, you get the same feeling. So again, uh, it's an ability for our brains to be put on autopilot uh, through this, uh, we might call again, thinking shortcut known as feelings. Let me give you an example from a study I had uh, years ago before I was a pastor. I had this study uh, on the University of Michigan and uh, 
uh, one of the grad students that attended my uh, study, uh, his family were Mormons and he was a new Christian and he came to the study and uh, we met in the morning and uh, he approached me after I think it was the first study and he said, can you, can you please get rid of the coffee? And uh, I was perplexed by that. I didn't really know that much about Mormons at the time. And I said, why, why, what's your hatred of coffee, of all things, right? Um, and uh, he told me that uh, he had come out of the Mormon religion, and in the Mormon religion, caffeine is considered a sin. Well, he's not a Mormon anymore, but the feelings are still there, you see. Without the recalibration, which means uh, enough time of that being changed in the mind, uh, then the feelings are still there. So when he saw the, he walked in the door and he, he saw the coffee, he got this feeling that something was wrong, even though there was nothing wrong. We do this with animals because animals function this way. Deer urine in hunting, depending on the, uh, the deer urine you use, whether it's a doe or buck, determines what you will attract. But we use it to attract that particular deer to the place where we can then kill that animal. And why they are attracted is because they're operating based on what? Their feelings. We do the same thing with the cheese in the mouse trap. The, uh, the mouse smells uh, the cheese and uh, walks right into the trap. And as humans, uh, we have the ability to do that uh, because we have something beyond just instinct that we're able to function uh, with, and that is uh, our uh, rational ability or uh, reason that comes through the mind. Let me give you an ex- another example of uh, this. Uh, expository preaching equals a biblical church uh, Years ago, that was kind of the way that you were told to sort out between a biblical church, a God-honoring church, a church that will get you to heaven, and one that won't, is that if the preacher preaches in an expository fashion on Sundays, well, men preach expositorily, and they preach expositorily all the wrong things all the time. That doesn't uh, in any way shore up what is being preached, whether it's right or wrong. Uh, And yet people will rely on that, right? Because it's a nice shortcut, a shortcut, right? I come in and I say, hey, are you you expositional? And if you're not, uh, well, then I know. And so where that's coming from, again, is just one of these kind of uh, feeling shortcuts or thinking shortcuts, right? Well, second to Peter, uh, as it relates to the animal portion of what I've mentioned, uh, actually speaks to this. Here it talks about those who blaspheme matters about which they are ignorant. And so uh, ignorance is a reference uh, to the mind, to thinking. And these individuals don't use their minds. Instead, they operate more like animals. Uh, Notice, but these like irrational animals... Creatures of instinct. Here again, another appositional phrase telling us what he means by irrational animals. Uh, They operate based on instinct. Uh, The idea of instinct is, again, feelings. Born to be caught and destroyed. Why are they caught and destroyed? Because they have no higher faculties. And like them, he says, these people also operate this way and will also be destroyed in their Destruction. And this again is what makes our feelings risky. 
They're great for some things. They're great for some things. Uh, But to use them uh, in relation to important things like spiritual things, moral things, right and wrong, very risky. So where do we find truth? If it's not in the multitudes of the world and uh, what they think, it's not uh, determined by our thoughts, our spiritual beliefs or our feelings, How do we discern or determine what truth is? Well, truth is discerned through God's word, which is outside of us. Unlike our thoughts, our beliefs, our feelings, which are inside of us. Outside. This book remains always outside of us, which means if I am to determine what truth is, I need to constantly be going back to it. Rather than what I think it says or what I believe it teaches. Jesus in his high priestly prayer in John 17, 17 says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Not my spiritual beliefs. This is not splitting hairs, by the way. This is not me being coy or clever. There is a difference. It is not what I think. It's not what you think that is uh, the discerner of truth or what determines truth. It is instead God's word, which is always outside of us, which is why we must always return to it. Sanctify them by the truth. And again, Jesus identifies what that truth is. Your word is truth. Not the spiritual beliefs of your people, your word. Because as we've seen, we can can believe we know what the word or God's word teaches and get it wrong. John 18, very interesting, uh, Pilate and Jesus' exchange there. Verse 33, so Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. It's outside of this world, in other words. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I may not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. And Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king, and for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice Pilate said to him, what is truth? As I said, very interesting exchange there, especially how Pilate responds to what Jesus says. Uh, It tells us, if you understand anything about the the predominant philosophical belief of that time, it tells us a lot about uh, why a Pilate does respond that way. You see, he's listening to Jesus. When Jesus says, I am not of this world and what I speak doesn't come from this world, it is outside of this world, Pilate understood exactly what he was saying. He understood that Jesus was saying something more than just being a king, that he was divine. 
Because the, philosoph- the philosophical thought of Pilate's day was that the only way to apprehend truth uh, was to receive it from something outside of the human race. To receive it from something that is special or divine. Hence the reason we refer to the scripture sometimes as special revelation or divine revelation. Discerning of truth or reality requires judgment from a source outside of ourselves. Going back to that text in Psalm 73, this is why after the psalmist says, I was like a beast. And remember there, we we saw that. He says, I became like an animal. He realizes that his thoughts, what he was thinking in relation to the wicked or even in relation to himself, that that was coming more from just his feelings. And in that way, his discernment of truth was wrong. He was like an animal to be captured and destroyed. And he says, but all of that changed the moment that he entered into the sanctuary of God. Verse 17. And then he says this, he says, then I discerned their end. What's in the sanctuary of God? Well, what he's referring to there is uh, the truth. That's where the scrolls of God's word would be found in his day. And so I came in there and uh, what was outside of me, what does determine truth was there. Special revelation. Words from God. And in that way, in understanding that, I discerned their end. I discerned what was reality as it related to the present situation. It's a funny thing about perspective, is it not? You can look at something and uh, uh, have a very negative view of everything that's going on and uh, someone else comes along and and uh, changes your perspective. And all of a sudden, the same thing, nothing's changed. All the parts are the same, but the way that you now look at or interpret that situation, the lens through which you view it is radically different. And it goes from something negative to something positive. Let me give you an example. It happened to me this week. I was thinking about our church and, uh, and uh, sometimes how I can feel like we're all in this, uh, this foxhole and we're just uh, waiting for the next person to be picked off by the enemy. And every Sunday I come and, uh, and, uh, and I do my best to, uh, to, 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 to equip you again to be ready. But that's what it is. We're just there waiting like hens in the chicken coop and just waiting to be plucked out by the bear. And then I realized that uh, as I read God's word and, uh, and I repented because I understood that what God's word was telling me was something different. Uh, we're not doing that at all. Where instead, even though uh, there may be nothing that is happening, let's say, outside in the world or engaging the world, nonetheless, we are impacting the world. We are impacting uh, the demonic realm. How do I know that? Because all of the demons and the devil-filled people keep the, uh, uh, seem to be screaming the loudest right now. You know what I'm talking about if you've read some of the emails we've received from some of the former apostate people. You can say, well, it seems like the world is against us. Well, the devils and the devil-filled people don't scream unless you're hurting them. We're having impact. And the change in perspective on that comes from not how I feel, not what it seems like, but again, going to God's Word. When I went into the sanctuary of God, I discerned their end. 
We need to train our minds then, beloved, to think biblically about everything, most especially the little things. Luke 16, 10, you know the text, that's where Jesus says, uh, he who is faithful in the little will be faithful in much. He who is disloyal in the little will be disloyal in much. You know, this is a, one of these passages that uh, uh, even the world has uh, kind of latched onto and it gets used uh, in a lot of different environments, uh, most especially the business world. And uh, they actually have a name for this particular principle. It escapes me at this point, but uh, they have a name for this particular principle that's taught there. Uh, but what's interesting as you look at this particular passage is what exactly that principle is, because I think it's missed uh, by these terms, uh, little and big. Here's what I believe Jesus is speaking to. And uh, when you look at it uh, as to uh, how uh, human beings function, or if you look at it through uh, that particular lens, let's say, how we as humans behave, I think it'll make uh, more sense. When we practice, uh, what we practice rather, when there is no pressure or stress, that's what Jesus means by the little things, is what we will automatically resort to in stressful situations or under pressure. That's the big things. And so again, uh, the little things, uh, the things uh, uh, that you're uh, doing, the practice that, uh, you are, uh, that you are solidifying, the things that you're conditioning yourself to as far as your reactions and your responses, those things uh, that you do when there is no pressure, are the things that you will fall back on when there is pressure. Because when there's pressure, uh, the last thing that we want to do is reinvent the wheel. And again, even the world understands this. Many, 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 and again, you, I would invite you to go out and uh, do your own research on this, but many studies have been done on this as to uh, just human behavior in relation to stress and no stress. And, uh, no stress rather. and, and what, what they found is, is just this, is that whatever you're doing when there is no stress is exactly what your body, what you will fall back on when there is. Hence the reason Jesus can say what he does. And so if you're not reading your Bible and uh, you don't have good spiritual discipline when there is no pressure, guess what won't happen when there is? If you don't know how to think biblically through things because you haven't taken the time when there is no stress to figure things out, to work through things, guess what's going to happen when there is stress? You see? He who is faithful in the little things, he who is faithful when there is no pressure or stress, will be faithful then, will be able to be faithful when there is. And usually the things that are associated with stress are indeed the big things in life, hence the reason we are stressed. And so again, we need to train our minds to think biblically about everything. And by thinking biblically, I mean this, being able to go to the text of God's Word, which is outside of us, and find the answer. I showed some of the guys a couple of weeks back, I had a, a couple of my old Bibles, and after I... Uh, I'll use the Bible for usually three or four years and uh, I'll, I'll mark it all up and then I'll start a new one. And over the years, I've, just, I've kept all those Bibles and, and I used to take it in the front of my Bible on those, those first few pages and I would just write out different verses uh, for counseling purposes or whatever and I would write all those things down so that I had a ready reference point that I could then go to, look there, find it, and then go into the Bible to then read what it is that God said about that particular topic or issue. You see, that's thinking biblically. 
And please catch the difference here. Thinking biblically doesn't mean going into my thoughts and remembering what I believe about God's word. It means being able to and going to God's word to make sure that what I believe is biblical. God's word, the truth, is discerned outside of us. Now, we're going to talk about what that means next week exactly when I say discerning it from God's word, which means we're going to get into the subject of interpretation. But again, this is thinking biblically. Can I go to God's word and find the answers? You say, well, I really don't know how to do that. Well, take a sheet of paper and write down all the things that are important to you, all the things that happen in your life. Some of you are going, uh, I think I heard, are going to go camping, or I'm getting ready to, uh, to go away to California and to sp- spend some time there. Let's call that vacation. What does God's word say about that? Am I just to assume that that's okay? Or can I take you, or can you take yourself to the places in Scripture that establish that as a good thing and what that should look like when I'm there? Because if you can't, then you can't think biblically. And you need to. And you need to. So thinking biblically, we need to train ourselves in this way. Hence the reason the army, by the way, this is something that's new I found out in the army, now puts 1.1 million soldiers through what they call their stress resilience training Uh, Anders Ericsson uh, says that training, this kind of training, washes out our natural dispositions. Uh, It keeps us from uh, responding through our feelings. Training uh, in the times of peace for the days of war. Because the days of war are stressful days, and I need the, the, uh, the undergirding or the foundation of those things already in place as something that I can fall back on rather than having to think about all that in the midst of uh, uh, when bombs are going off and bullets are uh, flying by my head. If you're not training your mind to make easy decisions based on God's word, then you will not respond biblically or be able to make biblical decisions when things get stressful. That's the point. Some diagnostic examples. Uh, Worldview. Worldview. So here, using that uh, idea of consensus... Uh, this, uh, by the way, uh, Daniel Kahneman, uh, his book, uh, uh, Thinking uh, Fast and Slow, uh, uses uh, two terms in reference to what we're talking about here. The first is availability heuristic, and the other is uh, effect heuristic. Uh, heuristic uh, is just a term that, uh, uh, that means a, a tool for understanding, uh, a tool, a practical tool uh, that is not necessarily uh, the most accurate, but uh, is an easy way uh, at getting things or understanding things. And so a consensus he would refer to as availability heuristic, meaning this, the information that is most available to you. And what he says in this book is that uh, people, uh, especially as it relates to that area of fast thinking, uh, tend to be inaccurate in this way in their assessment of the world or things around them or in their lives uh, because the only thing that they're truly uh, using to discern those things is what's available to them, which for most of us is social media. And uh, consensus, then, as it relates to worldview, the issue of worldview. Uh, Well, what is the consensus? What is most available? What is most popular? Uh, What is taught in the public schools today? Uh, Evolution and atheism. You say, well, I believe that because that's uh, what, what is everywhere. 
It's what's on the TV. You're watching some nature show uh, or whatever, and they're talking about the billions of years that this thing took to, uh, to, to, to come into form or to exist. Uh, it's all evolution, right? And so uh, this, is, uh, this is that availability heuristic uh, working, right? This is consensus. My worldview is, is that there is no God, and uh, we just, uh, we're all just uh, higher animal forms, but nonetheless animals. And this goes back to then uh, that, uh, uh, that Psalm 10 and that Psalm 14, the wicked and the fool, who say in their heart there is no God. Ephesians 4, 17 through 19, a futility of the mind, the foolish heart being darkened, Paul said, or says. And so worldview based on consensus uh, is evolution and atheism. Uh, worldview as it relates to our thoughts and our feelings, uh, here uh, that term affect heuristic. Well, I think it's the same. Again, because of Psalm 10 and, and uh, Psalm 14, uh, this is the effect of our sinful flesh. On our souls, is it not? Uh, there is no God. It's much easier just to think that we're just a bunch of animals. And that there is no God. What's the problem with God? Well, really no problem with God unless He requires something of you. If He's going to hold you accountable for what you do. Remember the most popular thing, the spirit of the age is, I want to be able to exercise my will with no consequences. The moment you put God into the picture, now there's consequences. I don't like that. So I'm just going to act as though God does not exist. And my feelings, because they're sinful, and they want to do sinful things, and they want to be able to do those sinful things without consequences for those sinful things, yeah, I think again, the worldview of our feelings and our thoughts there is no God. The truth, the truth that we find outside of ourself in God's word, you'll see the fancy equation here. That's just the, uh, uh, the equation for Newton's third law. And you'll see it's there times by the symbol eternity. It's Newton's third law, uh, eternally so. What is Newton's third law? For every action, there will be an opposite and equal reaction. I love it so much. Oh my gosh. Everything. General revelation speaks to it, does it not? We live in a causal universe. For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. And as I said, in this case, eternally so, which is why over and over and over, Old Testament, New Testament, God will repay everyone according to their deeds or what they have done. That's Newton's law. That's reality. Hence the reason in Revelation 22, 11, and 12, uh, that text that we looked at, uh, I believe it was uh, last week, uh, I made mention of that uh, in our eternal states, we will remain what we were, what we proved to be in this life, which is why it says, let the filthy still be filthy and let the righteous still be righteous. We will be rewarded in that way. That will be the equal and opposite reaction of our God responding in kind. It is not Newton's third law. It's God's law. Eternally so. How about salvation? Christian salvation, 
What's the consensus? What's the popular view of the world and the false church today? Uh, well, again, faith alone and uh, this other category that goes along with it as uh, the old, what we would call the soteriological system that drives faith alone, uh, Calvinism. What about our thoughts or our feelings, this effect heuristic? Uh, well, again, uh, faith alone. Why? Because there's no requirement. If all I have to do is just believe, right? Kind of like the, uh, the atheist position, but in this case, I get heaven to boot. Right? No real consequences uh, as long as I believe uh, in Jesus. And Calvinism, which uh, helps in this regard, tells me you can't even do that. God's going to do that for you. He gives you that by first giving to you regeneration. He causes you to be made alive. And if God has caused you to be made alive, then you believe, which means if you believe, you for sure have been made alive. And if that's the case, you cannot lose it because it's all of God. That's Calvinism. That's Calvinism. That is, by consensus, that is uh, uh, the popular view, uh, at least within Protestant Christianity. And I would say again that that is where our feelings and our thoughts want to go because in there, there really is the ease or the pressure is taken away as it relates to doing anything, obligation. Well, the truth we dig into God's word, again, outside of us, not concerned with how we feel or what the world uh, thinks. James chapter 2. James chapter 2, verse 24. You should know the text. You see, James says that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. You see that a person is justified. Notice, it's justified. There's no mention of sanctification here. I say that because if uh, you try this on your friends, uh, this particular judo move, you're going to get uh, the sanctification word in there. Notice it doesn't say that. Justified. You're standing before God. It's not just faith alone, but works the first thing he mentions is justified by works and not by faith alone. They say it's by faith alone. You read this verse, they say, well, uh, that's not what it means. Okay, I'll read it slower. Uh, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Uh, there's a way to do this uh, in the form of an equation, and it's actually very helpful because uh, theologians who attempt to do this uh, in the evangelical realm, I've represented it for you here, uh, this is how uh, they understand it. As a matter of fact, uh, the late R.C. Sprawl had this as one of his uh, table talks, his magazine. It was actually on the cover, uh, and he wrote it this way, J standing for justification equals, when you're justified, uh, works uh, plus faith. That they're there, they're there, or excuse me, excuse me, the other, the other one. Uh, faith equals justification plus works. That is the evangelical understanding. So they say, well, it's all faith alone. Well, what about our works? Well, that is the fruit, they'll say. That's the fruit of if I truly believe. If I truly believe, I'll have the works. But at the end of the day, it's only my faith that saves me, which means the works are just an indication of whether or not I've had faith. 
Now, without getting into the rest of what he says in these verses, because he makes it clear that that's not at all what he's teaching, just this one verse, laying that out in the form of equation, is this, according to what they're saying, what they're saying is faith equals justification plus works. Works come after. In other words, uh, they are not a requirement to justification. But again, if I go back to the text, and I lay that out in the form of an equation, what do I have? What goes on what side? You see that a person is justified. J equals works, and not by faith alone. So the biblical equation is J equals works plus faith. Is it not, based on what he says here? Very different, again, than the consensus that we're told by the world. Or maybe even what I would like to think. And when I hear Caleb tell me uh, the such things or uh, they sing their, 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 their sappy, effeminate uh, Jesus is my girlfriend songs, that's what I want to believe. But what does God say? Outside of me. You see, that's the place to go if you want truth. Outside of you, not in you. As it relates to the Calvinism issue, just one verse, this isn't... Uh, meant to be about that, but these are just, again, examples. Colossians 2, uh, verse 12. In him you were also circumcised, verse 11, with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith. Uh, You were raised with him Uh, There is uh, nobody that knows anything about their Bibles uh, that would disagree with what I'm about to say, and that is this. When it says you were raised with him, that's referring to your regeneration. Notice, however, the order. You were raised, right? You were raised with him. Notice the operative instrument here, doing the raising through faith. How does this relate to the issue of uh, Calvinism? Well, this is what's called the Ordo Salutis, which is just a fancy way of saying the order of salvation. According to Calvinism, as I told you, uh, it is uh, you are regenerated, then you have faith. You only have faith because you've been made born again. You've been born again by God, and as a result of that, you have faith. But if I go to the Word of God, it's actually just the opposite. You have faith then regeneration. Isn't that what it says there in the text? You were raised with him through faith, which means faith has to be there first. Faith, then regeneration, not regeneration, then faith. One final example, Ephesians 5.4. Ephesians 5.4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Consensus on this verse, and I would say here, consensus, even as it relates to so-called Christian churches, the availability heuristic here. And uh, this would include, no doubt, the world as well. Uh, they would say what? That that verse uh, means that uh, Christians should never say the F word. 
what the culture considers filthiness, foolish talk, or crude joking. How many of you have heard that, right? That, that this is what it's talking about. And if you want to take somebody to a verse to show them that they shouldn't talk that way, uh, then it's Ephesians 5.4. Okay, so that, that is, by the way, that's, that is the consensus. That's what you'll hear. I'm sure if you looked it up, you'd find the same thing. Uh, and so uh, from an availability standpoint, this is where the consensus is. This is what we hear. Does that mean it's true? Well, no, not necessarily. What about our thoughts, our beliefs, our feelings, what we call the effect heuristic? Uh, This is what drives the cancel culture. If I don't like the way what you say makes me feel, then I cancel you. Uh, Right? And uh, uh, the reason that uh, people that uh, will be on this particular bandwagon many times is because they don't like the way that those words make them feel. They'll say things like this, I don't want you to use that language around me. And when you do that, well, you are, uh, whether you know it or not, uh, you, are just, uh, uh, you are just supporting the cancel culture. Uh, unless those things truly are wrong, you are supporting the cancel culture. The reason you don't like it is because of the way it makes you feel. And most likely the reason that you feel the way that you do is because of the consensus that has told you that those words are wrong. Well, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3, the verse just before it, actually tells us exactly what he's talking about in verse 4. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be named or even named among you as is proper among the saints. Therefore, let there be no filthiness, i.e. sexual immorality, foolish talk, impurity, nor crude joking, covetousness, which are out of place. Uh, That's what he means uh, by those uh, three things, uh, filthiness, foolish talk, and crude joking. You say, I don't believe that. I think you... uh, You're saying that, and I think those are two separate verses that are are independent uh, of each other. Well, here's the question to ask yourself. And I want you to think about this, and uh, we'll close with this for today. Uh, And and be thinking about what we've talked about here. What is determining truth for you? And I think this is a great way to to end it. Not that I'm uh, campaigning for swear words in the church, but, uh, but, but think about this. If you believe that, because the principle is what's at stake here, if you believe that those words in and of themselves, because in the Bible there's only three things that I know that are sin in relation to words. Lying, slander, and blasphemy. Which means unless you're using those words in a lying, slanderous, or blasphemous way, uh, then they're not uh, sin. And you say, well, I, I still think that they are. Well, here's the, here, here's the question then you need to answer. When has morality, when is morality right and wrong? So in the case of words, here, ever been determined by the culture? Uh, Speaking biblically here, can you think of one thing in the Bible that the Bible says, if you want to know what's wrong, go to the culture? Because in every single culture for all time, there has been different swear words. And so, who's determining whether they're just words or there's something other than that? Well, clearly, the culture So can you think of one thing 
in all of God's word where God ever, ever, ever says, if you want to know what's wrong, go to the culture and ask them because whatever they say in relation to whatever that thing is is wrong, it's wrong. Is there one thing that you can think of that ever falls into that category? And I think you know the answer, no. But, but it just so happens that this one, one thing in all of Scripture, God says, go to the culture. When has morality ever been determined by the culture? Truth. Where are we getting our truth from? What discerns truth? What discerns right and wrong? Let's pray. Father, thank you that hopefully you've uh, renewed our minds here this morning by this principle and understanding of what it means to think biblically outside of ourselves, going to your word, shoring up those areas in our own thinking that it's wrong about what it means to uh, think biblically, to be a people who are discerning truth and not, Lord, not living according to the lies that will destroy our souls. Father, make it so in this body. Use this teaching this week. I pray for the, uh, the study groups that will meet together, the life groups, that the, the conversation is fruitful in this way. Make it so we pray and use what we learn here. Use it, Lord, to advance your kingdom in the world. Your will be done. In Jesus, our King's name, we pray. Amen.